Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful name you've given us. What a powerful name you've given us. What a glorious name you've given us. And what a great privilege is ours to gather around that name tonight. We come from various parts, not only of this state and city, but various parts of this nation and indeed this world. And one thing unites us, centers us, and even cements our relationship, and that is the name of Jesus. Thank you for what you've already done in this place. We feel your presence, and we know that you're here because you promised that whenever two or three were gathered in your name, you would be in the midst of us. And while we often misuse that for small worship services, it is still true whenever we come together as a biological family or as your spiritual family, you set your throne in the midst of our praise and you tabernacle with us. So thank you for it. Uh, you've been with us in worship, so I pray that you would be with us in the word, and we give you praise in Christ our Lord's name. And all the people of God together said amen. amen. Well, praise the Lord, everybody. It's, oh, that was good. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to tell you what to do, but you jumped right in there. Uh, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. You're great. What, a, what an honor and what a joy uh, it is to be in Orlando. And uh, even more, what an honor and what a joy it is to be on this extension campus of, um, of Asbury Theological Seminary. When Sister Joni uh, was pulling me up, driving me up, I said, oh, this is a beautiful campus. And she said, yes, it's intimate and it's close. She said, not like Wilmore. And I said, well, you know, Wilmore is the Vatican. And so, <laughs> so, so I'm delighted to be in this extension of the Vatican. And uh, what, what a joy to be with uh, my brother and sister um, who minister to you in such marvelous ways. And I think Jeff and Joni know how much they mean to me. Now, in, in, in the black tradition, um, a preacher never just starts preaching. Uh, you, have to, um, you have to give a preacher time to acknowledge people, you know, and to call people's names out. That's important to us, you know, and so I, I am delighted to have uh, my, my brother. We, we could have been twins had we been born to the same mother, but he's older than me, so we, we're not <laughs> twins. Uh, but uh, Bishop Thomas Scott, stand up, Scott, and let them see you. We love Scott. Give him a hand. And uh, all of my family, uh, Rachel, Mark, all of you, it's, it's good to be here. Um, the text has already been read, not only the text, but the context, what I want to preach from tonight. I, um, I'm always amazed. I know that uh, many of you are not old enough to remember this. Uh, there was a TV show on 100 years ago entitled The A-Team. Uh, a few of y'all remember that. And uh, Mr. T was on there. And uh, th there was this one line that said, I love it when a plan comes together. 
And uh, I sat in worship today, and I thought to myself, I love it when a plan comes together. Um, because how I wanted to introduce the message tonight uh, really was confirmed in the singing of the song. Uh, on the program, I think you may still have it, the name of the song is there, and then it says bilingual. So there were Spanish words and there were English words, and some of it was sung in Spanish and some of it was sung in English. It reminded me of that story, that story about Americans. And it said, what do you call a person who speaks three languages? And the answer is trilingual. What do you call a person who speaks two languages? And the answer is bilingual. And what do you call a person who only speaks one language? And the answer is American. <laughs> I, I thought about that because in many ways, the English language is not the most expressive language. Now, the English language I know I'm in a seminary, and so I know none of you know this, but the English language does have some words that are very expressive. But it's not, it's not the most expressive language. And, and one of the hindrances to the English language is that we very often only have one word to describe everything. Take, for instance, the word love, right? Uh, if I say I love seafood, and then I turn around and I say I love Dr. Jeff, and then I turn around and say I love my car, and then I turn around and say I love my wife, I would hope somebody would pick up that I don't mean that in the same way for all of those things that I don't love my car the way I love Dr. Jeff, and I don't know how to break this to you, I don't love you the way I love my wife. <laughs> but the English language only has one word for love. Of course, you know, because you're, you're seminarians, that the Greek language isn't like that. And, uh, and, and so because of that, there are many words for the word love, and, and tonight, I want to talk about the juxtaposition of preaching, and I'm using that word juxtaposition because you know that it's just a big word that really means to contrast. It's like bringing one thing alongside the other and laying them side by side so that you, watch this, you see the contrast. Um, um, let me, can I borrow you for a moment, please? No, you, no, you, yes, yes. That's what they always do in church, like he ain't talking to me. <laughs> What's your name? Robbie. Hey, Robbie, stand up here with me. Um, th this is a study in contrast. <laughs> and uh, we are a juxtaposition. <laughs> Everything he is almost, I am not. Uh, he is young, I am not. He is thin, I am not. What else is it? 
It's, it's, it's juxtaposition. It is to place one thing alongside something else so that the contrast, in, in a way, almost the contradiction is blatantly obvious. Another thing about juxtaposition, I love that word. The first time I heard it, the late Dr. Gardner Calvin Taylor used it, and I said, I got to learn that word, and I've been using it ever since. It sounds like a $50,000 word, juxtaposition, to put in contrast, to lay it side by side so that the contrast is obvious, the almost contradiction of it is glaring. And, and in another way, it also is a hinge word, like those doors are on hinges. It's a hinge word. And hinge words are words that turn a phrase and turn an idea. And, and that's what a juxtaposition is. It doesn't just show the contrast, the contradiction. Sometimes it even cancels out what the other word was. And when you read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 in the text tonight, particularly when he deals with this idea of preaching, when you study it, when you look at it, what's amazing is that Paul lifts up what for me are several juxtapositions about preaching. And, and I will say this, and I don't know how many of you are preachers or studying. I, I met, um, where, where, where did he go? Where did he go? There he is back there. Vinny, is it, what's your name again? Chris. Chris uh, came up to me. He said, um, you look official. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, thank you. And I told him my name. And he said, oh, you're the preacher tonight. And I said, yes, and I just kept looking at him because, you know, he was just all up in my grill. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was looking at him, you know. And, uh, and then he said, because I think he saw me kind of looking at him, he said, I'm a first semester seminarian, which is why I have a gleam in my eyes. <laughs> I thought to myself, call me next year. <laughs> See how peppy you are. I don't know how many of you are students of preaching. I don't know how many of you plan to go into preaching ministry. But whether you will preach it or whether you'll have to, I almost said suffer through it, sit through it. Um, you need to understand that whenever preaching is done, whether you are the one preaching or whether you are the one receiving, whether you are the one giving it out or you're the one taking it in, whether you're the one who is standing up proclaiming it or you're the one who is being seated and in a way being fed it. What you have to understand is what Paul says in this text about preaching that I think is so important, particularly in the day and time. We'll talk about this more tomorrow, I'm sure. Preaching in these tough, difficult times, preaching in a day and time when our nation and our world seems to be in such tension and stress and trauma that in the midst of this, we have to understand what Paul lifts up as the juxtapositions of the preaching that we do. 
that he lays preaching on one side and us on the other and says, never forget the contrast and really the almost seeming contradiction between the two. There are three things I want you to look at, and they're right here in this text. If you will pick up your worship bulletin, you'll see it. The first thing I notice, it's right there in verse 5, is the juxtaposition of the proclamation of preaching. Look at what he says in verse 5. For we preach not ourselves. Stop right there. Here's what every preacher has to realize. Let, let me do this so I'll know where to direct my gaze. How many of you are preachers? Let me see your hand. So, wow, that's a lot of you. Now watch this. While we are the ones who proclaim the preaching and we do the preaching, we are never the subject of preaching. Nothing is worse than to hear, I said to somebody, Scott, the other day about a person. I listened to a person the other day, and I almost was sickened by it because I couldn't tell whether the preaching was autobiographical, that he was talking about himself, or that he forgot what the subject was. You and I are not called. Paul says we preach. That's true. We, we preach. We are the proclaimers. We are the mouthpiece. We are the spokesperson, but we are not the subject. We preach not ourselves. Now, don't miss that because that is a wonderful, delightful, delicious, and disturbing juxtaposition. I do, it's me. This is my voice. This is my body. This is my mind. God is using all of that. There's no transfer. You know, uh, preachers have this stuff. Lord, take me out of self. Why would he do that? He needs you. He needs you. He needs your mind. He needs your mouth. He needs your life. He needs your voice. He needs your ability to see and to hear and to parse a passage and to apply it. He needs you. But while he's needing you and using you, it's not about you. We preach not ourselves. Well, if we don't preach ourselves, <laughs> what do we preach? Glad you asked. We preach Christ Jesus. We preach Christ. And there are three ways we preach Christ. Are you ready for this? First of all, we preach Christ risen. Thank you, whoever said that. We preach Christ risen. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He, okay, if it was Sunday morning and I was at first church, I'd say he did die. <laughs> Didn't he die? <laughs> oh, he died on a hill called Calvary, on a Black Friday that became a good Friday 
when they hung him high and stretched him wide, when they had beaten him to a bloody pulp beyond recognition, carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa between a sinning earth and a sorrowing heaven, he did die. And they buried him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But somebody should have known something was up because the text says it was a borrowed tomb and you only borrow what you plan to give back. <laughs> he borrowed it. He'd been borrowing stuff all his life. He borrowed a manger to be born in. He borrowed a ship to preach from. He borrowed stuff all the time, and when he got ready to die, he borrowed a grave. And then on Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hand. He is risen. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Y'all don't know hymns. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. We preach Christ risen. Secondly, watch this. Come here. Come here. We don't only preach Christ risen. We preach Christ reigning. Oh, boy. Now, I do not know how much of this I should share and how much I should say, but I'm going to risk it. Wait a minute. Before I risk it, is my check cut? Okay, good. I'm going to say this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know in this day and time, uh, we, we look around, we look to Washington, and we see so much going on. And, and sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the machinations and shenanigans of men, and they're strutting around like peacocks. And we need to remind ourselves, he reigns. No, he is Adonai. He is Lord. And that is what you proclaim. And preachers, young preachers, and preachers like me, long in the tooth and been around a long time, listen to me. We must ever and always stand up unapologetically, unabashedly, unashamedly proclaim to powers and princes and potentates, Jesus Christ still reigns. He's not just risen. We, we preach Christ. We preach not ourselves. What an amazing juxtaposition. We preach. That's true. But on the other hand, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. We preach Christ risen. We preach Christ reigning. Are you ready for the next? How many of you think you know what my next R is? We preach Christ returning. I think it was Martin Luther who said, who said, I preach Christ, or it might have been Calvin, or it might have been Wesley. One of them dudes said, <laughs> I preach as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and was coming back tomorrow. He is risen, and he reigns. And the great eschatological hope of the church is, behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't preach ourselves. 
We preach Christ, risen, reigning, and thank God, returning. That one day he shall come with 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up, the parousia of the saints. Caught up, the rapture if y'all want to use that word. Caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Here's good news. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Here's the second one. Are you still in the text with me? Here's the second thing. There's the juxtaposition of what I call the possession of preaching. Look, look at verse 7. It's right there. Uh, he, starts, he starts this term, this phrase, with the word but, conjunction. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Wow. Wow. That, that's a juxtaposition. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The best, the best definition I heard of this was about 103 years ago. Somebody said, I believe that. Somebody said what Paul really wrote was, if he were living today, we have this treasure. Are you ready for this? In styrofoam cups. <laughs> that I would sense my idea to get one real quick. But there's nothing in our society more disposable than a styrofoam cup. I mean, when I walked in, y'all had um, dinner and food, and some of y'all were walking around with cups. And, and I, here's what I know. I don't care how broke you are. Nobody is stashing away styrofoam cups tonight. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I know, I know you seminary broke. <laughs> and tell, tell for neighbor, say, that's real broke. I know your favorite meal is Roman noodles. I know, I know. But what, thanks so much. But watch this. Nobody's going to be <laughs> stuffing their pockets with styrofoam cups. It is the most, you'll sit in class, not while Dr. Jeff is teaching, of course, and you'll doodle on it and you'll stick your pencil in it and you'll bend it and you'll bite on it. Nobody, nobody ever gifts anybody a 12-pack of styrofoam cups. <laughs> I was thinking of you. <laughs> you just don't do it because nothing is more disposable than a styrofoam cup. And Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen. See, when he was alive, jars of clay. Remember he tells that thing about in a great house, there are many kinds of vessels and many kinds of utensils, some of honor, some. It's the same idea. Some are styrofoam cups and some are china. And the treasure are you ready for this? This will humble you real quick. All you are is a styrofoam cup. On your best day, that's all you are. Get over yourself. Stop being so impressed with yourself. So what you mastered Greek. 
So what you got an A on the test? So what you preach somewhere and four people said amen? Get over yourself. One of them was your mother, the other was your aunt. That doesn't count. Family doesn't count when you're preaching. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Nobody gets excited about the cup. They get excited about what's in it. Hot coffee, hot chocolate, cold punch. People want what's in the cup. And when that content is gone, the cup serves no purpose. It is the juxtaposition of the possession of preaching. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, if that's true, and I've got to sit down, how do I respond? Three things I want you to do when it comes to preaching. I have the, everybody say, the treasure is in an earthen vessel. Which means God, God deigns to use us. And thank God he does. What, 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 what a marvelous example of the condescending of God that he deigns and dares to use us. Frail, finite, fraught with mess people that we are. He uses us. And so what do we do? We embrace the gospel. We embody the gospel. In our lives, in our living, in our thoughts, in our action, in our words, in our speech. And then we employ the gospel. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, used to say of preachers in his preaching college that he used to have on Mondays in London, England. He would challenge sisters, this was a long time ago, the men, boys in that college, he would challenge them to have speech that was bibline. It's a word he made up, bibbling. And what Spurgeon meant was that if I am a preacher, then even when I talk, there ought to be some Bible in my talk. My speech must be bibbling. I embrace this gospel. My life embodies it. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Was it Brother Lawrence that said, preach everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words? You missed it. Preach everywhere you go. Preach all the time. And when you just have to, use words. But you embody the message and you employ it. Well, here's the third thing, and we'll, we'll stand and we'll move. Look at the text. There's the juxtaposition of what I call the power of preaching. It's in verse 7b, the B clause of verse 7. We have this treasure in earth and vessels. That's the A clause. Here's the B clause, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Beloved, listen to me. No man, no woman can preach on their own. Well, let me say this. They can try. And haven't we all heard that kind of preaching? Okay, confession. Haven't we all done it? Haven't we all gotten up there so sure of ourselves, so confident? I've studied, I've exegeted, I've researched, 
I've done it. I've done the word study. I've got all of the cultural setting. I got it. Boy, tomorrow, they better be ready. I'm going to blow them out the water. And it was a blow up all right. <laughs> it wasn't in the pew, but it was up here. The power is not of us. It is of God. I have the treasure in me, but I am not the treasure. I am the repository of it. And when his unction and anointing hits my life, power comes that I could never manufacture on my own. The excellency of the power is of God and not of us. It is what happens to uh, Jeremiah when he says, I had said I would not speak of him anymore. He had deceived me and misled me. And I had said I will not speak of him anymore. But his word was in me like fire shut up in my bones and I could not contain myself because when preaching takes you and gets a hold of you, it is not you, it is the infusion of his power in your life. It is ear to a flat tire. <laughs> the tire is there, it's rubber, it has potential but it's nothing until, ah, the Ruach, the breath of God, breathes on it. It's Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. It is nothing until some man or woman of God speaks life to them, and they stand up, an exceeding great army. That's what Paul says in verse 7b. And that power, beloved, is the power that makes preaching different. It does three things. It touches you. Can I beg you early in your ministry, don't become so professional that preaching doesn't touch you. In fact, if the preaching doesn't minister to you, do us all a favor. Don't preach it. Stay in the study. Stay on your knees until God lights a fire in you where the preaching touches you. When that preaching touches you, it will then take hold of you. And you will not be one who has to say something, but you'll be somebody who has something to say. And there is a world of difference. And then let that, that power, that light, that dynamite, the dunamis of God transform you. Because when it touches you and takes hold of you, it will shake you from center to circumference. And you will stand in that pulpit ablaze. And I think it was John Wesley who said, if you will stay in your study until you catch on fire on Sunday, Somebody will come watch you burn. But you have to be on fire. 
It is the juxtaposition of preaching. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus. We have the treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power will be of God and not of us. This is God's word for God's people and the people of God say thanks be to God.